Welcome to the Old Testament Reading Plan Podcast. I'm your host, Joel, and today we're going to be looking at Ruth 3 and 4, along with 1 Samuel 1 through 4. You can find and subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. All the links are found in the show notes. And if questions come up during the course of your reading, please feel free to ask them at bit.ly slash ask hyphen OT. Once again, that's B-I-T dot L-Y slash capital A, lowercase S-K, dash, capital O, capital T. As we begin, particularly for Samuel, we're going to notice characters with significant blind spots. Blind spots are those places where you don't know what you don't know. These are the unknown unknowns. They're the places that my driver's ed instructor always reminded me to check, and the places that danger seems most likely to turn up. Blind spots appear all over, and it's important for us to be aware of them, even if we can't see what's in them. We all have blind spots, whether those blind spots are placed there by nature or by nurture. For example, as a native English speaker, I'm ignorant of how many other languages have wordplay that English doesn't, or how their wordplay is similar to yet different than my own. Uh, For example, I saw the other day that the phrase, it's all Greek to me, appears in many other languages, but instead of saying it's all Greek to me, some say French, others Chinese, and still others Russian. I'd never considered this before. It was a given, something that I took for granted, that You know, Greek is what we say when we say it's all Greek to me. That's where many blind spots appear. And when we don't know the places in which we're ignorant, we have capacity to do some damage to other people based on certain assumptions we may make about them that aren't in keeping with reality. As we prepare to finish the story of Ruth and begin the story of Samuel, consider where are the blind spots that you have? What places might you need to educate yourself about intentionally instead of just organically? Let's get into the text. As we continue the story of Ruth, we see Naomi and Ruth hatching a plan for Ruth potentially to wed Boaz. Throughout the plan, there's language that they artfully use to hint at sexual relations. The instructions for Ruth are to wash, to anoint herself. There's repetition of words like uncover and know. There's the possible euphemism of uncovering Boaz's feet. And this is a blind spot for us in our culture. We don't know necessarily that to uncover someone's feet may mean to expose their genitals. And that's something that was not an uncommon figure of speech in Hebrew. However, these hints aren't there to suggest that anything happened. Instead, they raise the stakes for the reader. We see that Boaz and Ruth are both interested in being together, and that makes the climactic moment of chapter 4 that much more meaningful. We also see Boaz, who was named as a man of worth, or in some translations, a prominent rich man, early in chapter 2. We see Boaz acknowledge Ruth as a worthy woman in verse 11 of chapter 3, suggesting that they're a suitable match as a worthy man and a worthy woman, despite Ruth's Moabite heritage. And I want to pause for a second to spend some time with that phrase, worthy woman. In Hebrew, this is eshet shayil. It's sometimes rendered woman of valor. Uh, 
We see this phrase occur in Proverbs 31, where the character of a woman of valor is described. The late Rachel Held Evans wrote regularly about women of valor, comparing the qualities of Ruth to the qualities of the Proverbs 31 woman. I've linked a couple articles in the show notes. And here, despite not fitting into the categories of the Proverbs 31 woman, you know, Ruth is childless, she's husbandless, she's not even an Israelite. Despite all this, Ruth is called an Ashet Sha'il, a woman of valor, suggesting that a woman's character is far more important than her role or than her function. Getting back to the story of Ruth, Boaz wants to cover Ruth, to spread his cloak over her uh, as a sign of protection in marriage. Uh, and it's also similar to how a hen would uh, shelter its chicks, uh, similar to what Jesus talks about wanting to do to Jerusalem. But there are some legal hoops Boaz will need to jump through. You may remember the rules around levirate marriage discussed a few months ago. If a woman's husband dies without leaving an heir, the dead husband's brother is tasked with marrying the woman and conceiving a child who will be considered the child of his brother. Now, this practice is sort of extrapolated further down in Ruth, where there's an expansion beyond just the brother. Um, Ruth's uh, husband, uh, who died, had a brother, but the brother also died. So who will ensure that Ruth has an heir? Well, here we have the expansion of the practice of the kinsman redeemer that we see in Ruth. Um, not every woman would have a brother to redeem her, and in this case it seems that close relatives, like cousins, have the right to redeem the widow, but not the duty to redeem the widow. If a brother neglected to redeem his brother's widow, it would be deeply shameful and dishonoring. But in Boaz's conversation with the closer kinsman, the refusal of the closer kinsman to redeem Ruth doesn't seem dishonoring. While there's still a, sort of a formalization around this where the man takes off his sandal and gives it to Boaz, Boaz does not spit in the man's face or anything like that as would be common if a brother didn't marry the brother's widow. One quick note about this. Boaz goes to the city gates because that's where the town's elders would preside over matters. Here is where Torah is interpreted. Here is where justice is done. And Boaz, as a man of worth, wants to make sure he's doing things by the book instead of ignoring the intricacies of the law. So when the way is cleared for Boaz to redeem Ruth, he does so immediately. And they conceive a son, Obed. Take note here. Obed is the father of Jesse, who would become the father of David, the second king in Israel. Because of Boaz's interest in Ruth, and because Ruth was so clearly in a shit sha'il, David came into being. I think Ruth's story is a fantastic microcosm of the story of the gospel. Jesus Christ is our kinsman redeemer, who welcomes those who are far off, like Moabites, and those who are near, like Israelites. He takes on our baggage, our flaws, our sin, and he calls us worthy. He calls us beloved. He calls us his own. The story of Ruth serves not only as a palate cleanser after Judges, as I suggested last week, but also as a prequel to the narrative of David. 
We still have several chapters to go in 1 Samuel before arriving at the David story, but the books of Samuel begin the Davidic narrative arc. We cannot understand David until we understand Saul. And we can't understand Saul until we understand Samuel. Therefore, the books of Samuel begin with Samuel's mother, Hannah. We begin with the story of two wives, one of whom is barren, yet better loved, uh, and the other of whom has children, but is not loved as much by her husband. And this harkens back to Leah, Rachel, and Jacob. Readers of the Hebrew Bible, when Penina Hannah and Elkanah are introduced, they'll know what the story is leading toward. However, there are some twists in this story. The priest Eli, who is supposed to be an agent of God to encourage the beloved childless wife, instead chews her out for seeming to be drunk. And moreover, this comes immediately after Hannah promises to give the child to the Lord as a Nazarite, one who will not cut his hair or partake of alcohol. Clearly, as we'll see soon, Eli is not a model priest. He's not possessed of priestly intuition, nor is he possessed of strong eyesight. The one who is supposed to see on God's behalf has trouble seeing. Another note here about Elkanah's first words to Hannah in verse 8. He is simultaneously kind and completely blind to the crushing disappointment that Hannah has experienced through not becoming a mother. For women of this time, motherhood was the way to succeed for many of them. Elkanah, despite his desire to see Hannah eating and drinking, is unable to see the true disconsolation of his wife. And that's because of his privilege. That's because of his blind spots. Privilege isn't a bad thing. Every person is born with a certain amount of privilege. But privilege changes how we see the world. It changes our blind spots. As a straight white male, for example, there are certain facets of life I can never experience. There are certain things to which I will be naturally blind. To live out my calling as a Christian, which involves offering care to all of God's people, and note that's not just my calling as a pastor, that's my calling as a Christian, I need to do the difficult work of locating my blind spots, of educating myself about them. We, we all are called to be people of compassion, and to become a compassionate person, I must at least attempt to understand the suffering and the joys others experience, even though they may be alien to me. Elkanah wanted to be an excellent husband. Good. He could have been even better had he listened, had he truly listened to the desires of Hannah's heart. So I want to charge you not to be satisfied with being Elkanah. Be a better spouse, be a better companion to your friends than Elkanah was, and try to have true compassion on what they're going through. So after having Samuel, delivering Samuel, Hannah rejoices. The song she sings has great themes of overcoming adversity and God's providence in the midst of foes. And this is typical of biblical poetry and song, it speaks to the degree to which she valued having children, that this is seen as, as a massive victory for her. And we're going to see echoes of this song in Mary's Magnificat in Luke, along with Elizabeth's song when she prepares to have John the Baptist. Samuel seems intent to become a better priest than Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, although that doesn't look like it's going to be too difficult. These two sons of Eli serve as a cautionary tale, highlighting the damage that spiritual abuse can do. While it may seem severe when it says the will of the Lord was to kill Hophni and Phinehas, they were 
actively taking advantage of people's offerings and dedication. They were bending each of them to serve their own appetites. Now, in the Presbyterian Church, we understand ordination to involve both an inner call and an outer call, where one desires to participate in ordered ministry, that's the inner call, and one's peers and colleagues affirm that desire, that's the outer call. Uh, Your desire to participate in ordered ministry and your skills for it should be something that people who are near to you can see. Now, Eli's sons were only priests because of their father. They had no corrective influence other than Eli's feeble attempts at encouraging them to obey God's law. So it's not, I think, too much of a stretch to suggest that they did not experience an outer call to serve as priests. Perhaps they had an inner call, one that they Uh, had in order to take advantage of God's people. But it's while Hophni and Phinehas are abusing their authority that Samuel learns from Eli how to serve God as a priest. And note this, that his mother hasn't forgotten him. Don't miss that she would make him a little cloak year after year, likely praying for him and missing him all the while. Whether it's that love that Eli's sons didn't get, or whether in his old age, Eli sees more fit to be crotchety with the young Samuel. Samuel is in the priest Eli's care, and Samuel turns out a little differently than Eli's sons. Now, Samuel should have been learning about God under Eli's care, building a relationship with the Lord through learning God's Torah. However, when the Lord calls out to Samuel, Samuel doesn't recognize God's voice. While the text does say that the word of the Lord was rare in those days, there's something unnerving about serving as the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of an altar boy, yet never investing in a relationship with God. I wonder what Eli was doing. Surely, like Elkanah, Eli meant well, but instead of helping Samuel get to know God, it seems like he merely had Samuel serve as an acolyte in the place of worship, making sure the right fires were lit, that the right doors were open or closed, that certain things were prepared for worship. And when we're so busy preparing for worship, we don't always have time to worship. Once Eli and Samuel realize that God is reaching out to Samuel, Eli does give good advice. But if children are raised in the church and still don't know the voice of the Lord through God's word or through prayer, the church has missed the mark. We can do better. God's word to Samuel is unpleasant. Eli's sons have failed as priests, and Eli has failed as a father. Therefore, God's judgment is going to come on Eli's whole house. What an intense word from the Lord for a young boy to deliver to his mentor. God does not promise us that God's work will be easy, only that it will matter. And from this time, Samuel's star will begin to outshine Eli's, even before the entire judgment is fulfilled upon Eli and his house. Samuel will be known through all of Israel, and his word will be trusted. So we move from here to a more martial context. And the Philistines who are the main national antagonists of Israel throughout the book of Samuel, they make their first appearance here in chapter 4. They are clearly superior to the Israelites, militarily anyway. And this causes the elders who are at war to suggest, hey, you know, let's bring in the Ark of the Covenant 
out to battle. That'll offer the army a pick-me-up of sorts. Sort of like, you know, suggesting that everybody in the army pray before they go fight, or everybody in the army wear crosses. Uh, it's, it's taking something that is holy, that is consecrated, and appropriating it for our own purposes. And this is never a good idea, to take something holy and to use it for our own desires. It's what Hophni and Phinehas were known to be doing, and it never ends well. The battle with the Philistines is no exception. Beginning with this battle, the ark will depart from Israel's primary place of worship until David brings it to Jerusalem. And in fact, this battle becomes an absolute rout in every way, shape, and form. When we try to maneuver God onto our side instead of ensuring that we are, in fact, on God's side, it never works. In fact, it's not too far off the mark to suggest that bringing the ark into battle is an example of using God's name in vain. The ark was not meant to be brought in as a battle prop. It was designed to be God's footstool in the tabernacle. In bringing the ark, Hophni and Phinehas make themselves targets. They make the ark a target. They themselves are killed and the ark is taken. When Eli hears this news, the now blind and sedentary priest keels off his chair and dies. The death of Eli shows one of the dangers of blind spots. We might have long and storied careers in spite of our blind spots, but Eli's failure as a father and his failure as a priest was ultimately what killed him and marred his career. Instead of overseeing a revival in the national worshiping interest, his legacy is instead the priest who trained Samuel, which is good, but also the priest who outlived his talent and passion for the job and lost the Ark of the Covenant. That's all for Ruth 3 and 4 and for 1 Samuel 1 through 4. Next week, we'll read 1 Samuel 5 through 10, and we'll continue to follow the ark among the Philistines, along with seeing Samuel lead Israel and Saul appear as king. May God bless you in your reading of Scripture. Scripture.